Kutisov for the Devils plays it cross ice into the far corner. Matteau swoops in to intercept. Matteau behind the net. Swings it in front. He scores! Matteau! 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 Stefan Matteau! And the Rangers have one more hill to climb, baby! But it's Mark Vancouver! The Rangers are headed to the final! What a really strange, strange week I had. I dragged my feet all week getting back into this room to finish off this podcast. I have no idea why. I recorded the interviews for this podcast earlier in the week, like Wednesday, I think I was done. And then I even recorded an interview for next week's podcast on Friday and just didn't get it done for whatever reason, just dragging ass so here we are. Anyway, um, with that said, I uh, hope you enjoyed two podcasts last week. We had Season 9, Episode 3, and then I put up a bonus, uh, Season 9, Episode 4, where I had Mike Harrington, and we talked, uh, you know, we focused on Sabres. So got those two things in. Colson's coming in the room a little rattled. I don't know why. Um, it's late, I guess. I just want to kind of get this done because I've been dragging my ass all week, like I said, and I feel under the gun and now I'm rattled and I'm fumbling and I'm totally blowing this open. And what a professional would do is it would start over uh, and totally redo it and blow it up because it sucked. But eh, forget it. <laughs> Last week we had season nine, episode two, Richard Deitch and Justin Bourne are on. Uh, Richard, of course, talked sports media with me, Justin, NHL, and then I put up a bonus episode three, Mike Harrington, and I replayed the Justin Bourne interview in case you hadn't heard it, uh, but the focus, of course, season three was the Sabres stuff, and then Justin was a little extra, so that makes this season nine, episode four, and that's what we're, this is what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to do an interview uh, in a second. I'm going to take a break. We're going to come back with Ed Sherman. Uh, Ed Sherman's been a Good friend of this podcast for a long time, uh, and it's been a business he's been on. Ed had a website called Sherman Report back in the day, and Sherman Report was a website that would cover the shit out of the sportscasters. It was like the coolest thing because we had kind of just started, and we're getting links to these articles from this website called Sherman Report, and they're talking about our podcast like it's a Bob Costas show or something, and it was super cool, and we got to meet Ed uh, and get to know Ed, and then he wrote a book about Babe Ruth, which we featured uh, in our book club, and it's been a bit since he's been on, but he writes a column uh, for NFL.com uh, covering media stuff for NFL.com, and I thought he'd be perfect to kind of critique Tony Romo's for a Super Bowl. We talk about a bunch of other things, too, Chicago sports. We did this Monday, so basically a week week ago by the time you hear it, uh, but it's still great. We'll get, to, uh, we'll get to Ed in a second. Then I'll be back with a book club update. Uh, which will be quick. I got a couple updates on some things I'm working on for the book club. And then we're going to close out a book we've been working on to start out the season called Beyond Broadway Joe uh, with an interview with a guy named Bob Letterer. So Bob Letterer is going to be on second interview to talk about his book about the Jets. We'll get 
to more of that later. And then one last thing. I took Paula to her first hockey game today, uh, and I'll tell you about that experience. So, since I totally sucked this whole Open, uh, I think the best thing to do... Well, I know the best thing to do would be to re-record it, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to do the second best thing, which is move on, take a break, and come back mercifully with Ed Sherman. All right, our first guest today is from Highland Park, Illinois, and is a graduate of Illinois. Uh, he's a good friend of the program. First met him back in the Sherman Report days, uh, and he's nice enough to join us today at Warren Sportscasters. Welcome to Ed Sherman. How's it going, Ed? Welcome back to the podcast. We've missed you, Mr. Sherman. Yeah, it's been a while. Good to hear from you. Always good to talk. Hear, I follow your stuff, try to listen when I can, so it's always good. How are things in Chicago? The Blackhawks are a little down. They did come to to Buffalo for their annual ass whooping of the Sabers. Uh, the... <laughs> yeah, we got our three Stanley Cups, so it's probably more than we expected in one lifetime. But yeah, they're a little bit down. They probably need to do some rebuilding and uh, reshaping. And uh, it's been an interesting year. But uh, you know, a lot of good memories. It's kind of hard to be too down on them, considering what the great run that they had. Now, I know you're a White Sox guy. Do you think that the White Sox can can get one of the two big names? Uh, I don't know. Everyone's kind of exhausted by it, by, by the whole weight and the discussion. It's hard to say. You know, I, it's, it's a little bit of a dice roll for those guys to, you know, to sign with the White Sox and kind of bet that their prospects are going to come through. Um, so you just don't know for sure. Never know with prospects. So... I think that's the one thing that's still kind of holding them back. And, um, you know, if they get one of those guys, I would imagine it would be Machado. I just don't see – I think really Harper is going to go to a team where he's can, you know, he can play in the World Series next year. And I think that probably not the White Sox. But Machado, got all the, they, they got a bunch of his friends. They got his brother-in-law on the team. Um, so I think that might be a spot where he could end up if nothing else happens. I mean, just the market for both of those guys does not seem to be that great. Did you have fun with the uh, with the Bears season? How devastating was the uh, the parquet miss for you? Yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, everyone saw it coming. It was kind of like the train wreck that you can see, you know, in slow motion. And it was just, uh, you know, it was just brutal, you know, to lose a game that way. And um, it was right there, and you never know what could have happened. Uh, you know, I would have taken my chances and go, you know, going. To- against Los Angeles the following week. and um, But uh, it was disappointing, but at the same time, it was good to have the Bears be relevant again, and uh, that's something that hasn't happened in a long time. And everyone's hoping, you know, next year is going to be the year. What are your thoughts on uh, on Mitch? Are you sold on him as a franchise QB? Have you seen enough just in terms of development <laughs> to believe in him? Or yeah, I think that jury's still out. You know, I think that uh, he does some really good things, and you know, he really did put them in position to win that game. Yeah. So, uh, very athletic guy, but you know, still the consistency is not there. But um, still early in his career, and I think he really does some good things. And you know, as we saw from Goff yesterday, you know, these guys are still going to be inconsistent, and you still need to give them weapons. Um, and um, so, I think that. Uh, 
<clears throat> I think the Bears still probably have a few pieces to add to kind of, you know, bring the productivity out of Trubisky. But, um, you know, he seems like a good guy, and I think everyone's kind of rooting for him. And, you know, the, the whole narrative from him might have been a little different if Parkey made that field goal because he did put them in position to, to win that game, and they should have won that game. Right, and the Rams would have been a good matchup for them too, I think. Um, yeah, well, they'd already beaten them once. Right, so. yeah, it's just a good matchup. It, I like his swagger. There's something about Mitch that kind of feels like Chicago's a good city for him. You know, I just feel like he matches up a little yeah. bit with the with the Yeah, they, they like him here. You know, he's just he's you know he's just inconsistent, and that's kind of the theme with young quarterbacks. I right. mean, he's going through. You know, he had to learn a new offense again for the second straight year. So now he's going to come into 2019 with the offense already intact, and that's a big deal. You know, so now he's going to be able to hit the ground running as opposed to having to spend the, the year trying to learn a new offense. Let's talk about Ed Sherman. I know you're you're doing a column on, on uh, NFL.com, which we're going to spend uh, most of the rest of this time in a minute here talking about the Super Bowl and the broadcast and all that yesterday. But what else? what else are you up to? You know, uh, I've pretty much been doing a lot of freelance. I, you know, I, I've been doing that NFL media column for about this is my third year, and uh, for NFL.com. And um, my big project right now, I'm a, it's something I've always wanted to do, and I'm I'm in the process of doing it. I'm writing a history, the official history book of the Big Ten, from 1895 to today. Wow! Uh, so I'm working with, so that's going to hopefully come out in the fall. I'm working with the conference on that. Um, and um, and so uh, it's exciting, you know. It's it's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts, and we're kind of getting to the point now. But uh, you know, conference is an, an amazing history, and it's you know it's not easy to get everything in one book. And I'm not even going to try to get everything in one book. But when you look at the athletes, you know, starting with a Red Grange and Jesse Owens and Mark Spitz and Jack Nicklaus, I mean, you know. <laughs> You know, it's uh, Magic Johnson and uh, coaches like Woody Hayes and Shem Beckler and Bob Knight and Amos Alonzo Stagg and, you know, just all the things that have happened through their history and continue to happen through this day. I mean, it's it's a pretty uh, interesting story. And so that's going to come out in the fall. And I hope, uh, you know, people will find it interesting and they'll want to get by it. And, and um, you know, it's just kind of been almost a child of the Big Ten Grew up in Chicago, going to Northwestern games, went to Illinois, you know, grew up on Woody and Bo in that era. That was kind of right in my wheelhouse. And so it's been a project that I've wanted to do for a long time, and now I'm finally getting to do it. And now you got your son dragging you out to the Big 12. <laughs> that's right. I got a son down in Texas. <laughs> How dare he? So that's been a lot of fun. That's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed that. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, that gives me another team to root for, and um, it's a great place. I'm going down there exactly. Following next, not this weekend, but following weekend, and uh, you know it's a really good place, and to kind of have them be relevant and strong in football again is a lot of fun. And he's got a couple of years to go, so that'll be fun to to watch them. Uh, you know, maybe make a run at a national title in the next couple of years. And uh, it's a great place, great restaurant. It's probably the best restaurant in town I've ever been to. It's amazing how many good places, different kind of food there is down there. They they know how to do it right. So let me ask you this, because we kind of had a little bit of a um, cro- uh, sports sportscasters royalty crossover. So we had a lot of fun, sort of promoting your your Babe Ruth book, the Called Shot. 
Sure. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun kind of just promoting that with you. And we had John. We talked all about it. And sort of at that time that your book was coming out, the first lady of the sportscasters, Jane Levy, was working on her book. And, uh, you know, I had sort of right. said, said to her, you know, maybe you should guys could hook up or, you know, speak or whatever. But <laughs> that book has been out now. Did you get a chance to check it out? And are you as shocked? Yes, yes, I actually. What that book has got I, legs, huh? I mean, people are into that book. Well, and you know, yeah, and you know, it's because Jane is so terrific. You know, I mean, she spent what I don't know five, seven years writing this book, researching. Yeah, eight years. Jane yeah. is, you know, I mean, she's kind of, you know, I mean, when you get to be that level where you're kind of like a franchise, you know, there's probably who would I put in that category? John Feinstein for sure, and you know, Jeff Perlman starting to kind of be that, you know, that. Uh, you know, probably is in that category that whenever they do a sports book, you're going to get it regardless of the subject because their previous work is so interesting, compelling, well-written, well-reported. Um, and Jane, certainly, you know, with what she's done with, with Sandy Koufax books and the Mickey Mantle book that she did. And now the Babe Ruth book, I mean, it's just, you know, you're going to read it because it's unique. It was, it's a unique approach to, writing a book on a subject that's been written about many, many times and by esteemed writers, you know, and especially Robert Creamer and Lee Monfield have done already comprehensive biographies of Ruth. So she took a little bit of a different approach by writing about this barnstorming and also kind of really digging up childhood, you know, yeah. childhood. I mean, that was to me the most compelling part of the book, you know, um, barnstorming was interesting, but the childhood stuff was really fascinating. And, um, you know, and I think that that's why she, you know, she found a different way to tell that story. So more power to her for doing it. And, you know, it's great to see that, you know, someone is still buying books and, you know, that, you know, if you do a worthy book these days that people will go out and buy it and it will sell. So it, it, it's just, uh, she did a great job. I gotta be honest when that, when that book came and I told Jane this too, when that book came and I, I took it out of the package, I said, Man, I do not need it at the 700 page Babe Ruth book in my life. Like, how am I going to get through this? And then I was, you know, 60 pages in, and I'm like, wow, I really needed an 800 page Babe Ruth book in my life. Who knew? You know what I mean? So, well, see, I knew, see, I knew because it was Jane who did it. You know, maybe if it was someone else, maybe I would have hesitated. You know, I agree. But I knew that Jane, you know, just, and again, I think that that goes for, you know, books like, you know, Jeff Perlman, just an awesome book on, on USFL. Oh, but amazing. Kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, now he's done so many books now that you're like, okay, when he comes out, you know, when he writes a book, you're going to get it regardless because you just know it's going to be a good book. And, you know, and, and I knew Jane would be, you know, I knew, well, I knew of the, what, how she was approaching it just from the advanced publicity and in her interviews. And so you knew that was going to be a really good book. And, and, and she's just a, such a gifted writer and, and just a relentless reporter so you just knew it was going to be a solid piece of work and 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 it is and it's just great to see and you know looking forward to our next book i hope it's not another seven or eight years from now but um we'll see yeah and jeff is a friend and uh he's testing my limits because he's already put out one lakers book and now his next book is a Shaq and kobe lakers book uh so i told him <laughs> you know you're killing me with this basketball stuff but um, if Jeff, <laughs> well, writes, if Jeff writes areas, it, I read so. it, right? If Jeff writes it, I read it, kind of like what you were saying. The Sportscasters right. are here right. with Ed Sherman, catching up, finding out what he's up to. Excited about this Big Ten book. 
Uh, that sounds like that's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to uh, to promote that one for you, Ed. And um, the, uh, the 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 reason I re- I reached out now or today or whatever was I thought we might have some fun looking back at the Super Bowl. The problem is, is it possible in any way to have fun looking back at that Super Bowl? No, you know, it was not a great game, unfortunately. I think we've been a little bit spoiled, you know, that we've had such a series of really exciting, either high-scoring or, you know, riveting games in the last what, three or four games have been pretty good. You know, I think the last clunker was uh, Seattle and, uh, and Denver. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, um, you know, so it was, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, but still, you know, if that game had gone, you know, it'd gone differently than the last few minutes, it would have been um, more compelling to watch. But just the, you know, if, if you're a football guy, you know, <clears throat> it wasn't compelling to the average fan. But I think there was, if you were a pure football guy, to see how how um, Belichick you know, orchestrated that defense against a really good Rams offense. I think that was pretty interesting to watch. And I thought that, that was, so there were some elements to it that, uh, you know, I just, you know, nobody, it's hard to be a Bill Belichick fan if you're not from New England, because he's just not warm and fuzzy. But I will have to say in the last, you know, this year, <laughs> really, you know, maybe it took me eight, nine Super Bowls and six world titles to say it, but, you know, it's just. It, I, I think this year more than anything, any other, any of those other years, this was the year where you really have to say this guy is just a genius. There's not, you know, the best ever. I mean, I do not think that that was going to be a Super Bowl team. You know, even after they lost to Miami for sure, um, and just the, you know they gave 34 points to Miami, which you know they, their offense was terrible. It wasn't a great Patriots. And they gave it 34. It wasn't. I mean, it's not. Yeah, but they came together. But yeah. they came together at the end of the year. You know, I think a really big difference was that Sony Michelle got healthy at the end of the year, and that gave them the dimension of the offense that they, you know, that really, that they didn't have. And I think that that really, <clears throat> I think that impacted the whole team because they were able to control the ball, kept their defense off the field. Um, and, um, you know, they, they went on some really long drives. I mean, that you know, Thanks to that running game. I mean, you can't really do that with a passing game. You know, you look at what they did in the Kansas City game. You look at, you know, how they finished the game yesterday with another long drive. I think what they started, their six or something like four or six. And they went, you know. The one touchdown drive uh, they had. Is that what you yeah. yeah. And even that last field goal, you know, to score that last field oh, goal. Right. They, they, yeah. they pretty much ate the clock. I think it was the field goal where they ate, you know, pretty much ran out the clock almost, you know. And, um you know, I, 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 but you just, you know, no, it was not a great game. Um, disappointing game, you know. Um, but, um, but I just think you are, I, I, the sports historian in me really is, you know, appreciating the history that you're seeing that likely will not be repeated, probably you know, not anytime soon. I mean, there's the nine Super Bowls, what is it, since 2001. That's I mean, nuts. every other year they're averaging a Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's nuts when you consider, that there are still franchises who have yet to make playing a Super Bowl, you know, the Detroit Lions uh, haven't played a Super Bowl, you know. Um, the Browns. The Houston, you know, the Browns. Jacksonville. You know. <clears throat> um, but, you know, but Detroit Lions, I mean, they go back to, you know, they're, all, they're an original franchise, and there's right. still, you know, many franchises that have yet to win a Super Bowl, you know. So it's, it's an amazing um, – 
it's an amazing run, and you have to really, you know, appreciate the the excellence that's involved in in and uh, in putting together a team for this long of a period of time, basically with not one set of players, but several set of players. I know the quarterback has been a constant, and that's a big thing. But you know, you're talking defense. Quarter Tom Brady does not play defense, and um, and that that was a defensive victory last night. It really was a defensive. Almost through the playoffs, it was almost a defensive, you know, except for the fourth quarter in the Chiefs game. I mean, they shut down the Chiefs pretty much, you know, and um, so just a really great um, uh, hats off to Belichick and Dow Brady, and, you know, and we'll see what happens next year. Well, Belichick's now had the all time Super Bowl. He had the Super Bowl 25, the game plan against the Bills, shut down one of the great offenses of the 90s to win, help right. the Giants win that Super Bowl. He had the yeah with Jeff Hostetler as with a backup Jeff Hostetler, yeah. He had the uh, the the first time they beat the Rams in the Super Bowl, the greatest show on turf, and kept right. that offense in check. And then that performance yesterday, so you really have to t- tip your your cap to him, no matter you know how grumpy and and, and grizzly he can be. He he's an all time great. Let me, let me ask you. Let's let's shift to the let's shift to the broadcast a little bit, and I want to talk about Romo. I was I had Richard Deitch on last week, and we were talking about how already the opinion exists that Tony Romo is the greatest to ever do this. Right? There's people who are offering that opinion, and there's no need to debate whether right. it's true or not. But people are offering that opinion, like he's reached that level in the minds of enough people that were hearing this. Yesterday was his first Super Bowl. What did you think of uh, of Tony Romo uh, in his first Super Bowl, and how you think he handled what was a pretty dull game? Um, and kind of it, it was a dull game, you know. He's yeah, you know. I've been kind of telling people he's going to be this generation John Madden. I mean, I think he's going to be a television superstar, and and, uh, and you know, cause just because of his personality and how infectious it is, and his approach, and how excited he gets, and it's genuine. It's not it, it's not manufactured the same way with Madden. It wasn't manufactured. It's you know who he who he is, and. um I thought, you know, I mean, I thought he did a good job. I, you know, yesterday, I mean, that's, it was a bad game. You know, they had fun. They were, they were, um, you know, I saw Richard actually put out a tweet saying, you know, how there's a lot more humor than usual for a Super Bowl. I mean, they were kind of poking fun about how bad the game was. Right. And they were, you know, in the lack of offense and, you know, how excited. Okay. Paul is just hanging out. You, you, you can keep going. Uh-oh. She's part of the show. <laughs> okay. okay, good. Hi. So anyway, um, so anyway, so uh, I thought that they, you know, I thought that they did a, a good job with a not good material to work with. I mean, you know, his game really was that that, that Kansas City game, you know, the title game. That was the all timer championship yeah. game. That was an all timer, but it really, as Jim Nance had said, he'd been doing that. You know, it's kind of what his his thing is. You know, I think we're, you know, the danger, the not the danger, but something he, they need to be careful is that everyone's going to now expecting him to predict every play and, you know, and that, you know, and then is there going to be pressure for him to kind of predict every play? Really the stuff kind of comes, he has to kind of really make sure and continue that it's kind of organic, that it's coming natural. That he's not trying to force these predictions. If he sees something great, go with it, but he doesn't see something, you know, don't, don't feel like, Oh, this play is going to be a run up the middle or, you know, um, you know, run to the left, you know, whatever, you know, I think he's, I mean, I don't think he really 
predicted a lot of plays yesterday. No, he dialed better. that back. My wife, my my yeah. wife actually mentioned that. She said she said to me around the third quarter. She said, "How come he's not? How come he's not telling me what's going to happen as much this week?" Because we had watched. Yeah, because maybe he didn't see it. Maybe he didn't see it as much. Right. That's what maybe I said. Didn't, you know, maybe you know, and they're playing. You know, I mean, I thought you know, again, towards the end of the game, there was an instance. Where, you know, where this is what he does so well. He was talking about there was a play where uh, Goff was going to his right, and you know, and they were showing how this New England knew exactly where it was going, how they flooded that zone with all these defenders, and there was nothing there for him. You know, and that's what he does. You know, so I think a little bit, you know, I think there's going to be times when he predicts a lot of stuff, you know, where he's in the flow, where he sees it, um, you know, and that's great. But I think it's going to be, you know, I think there's going to be like, I just worried about him that there's going to be, oh, he didn't predict as many plays as normal. What was wrong with him? How come he wasn't calling all the plays? Because, you know, I think that that was something in the New England game and maybe other times when he kind of sees something and he, and he kind of gets into the flow of the offense, and it's probably not going to happen all the time. Um, but um, he's still really great at explaining stuff and telling you what, you know, I think the mark of any good analyst is tell me something I don't already know. Teach me about the game. You know, let me go, and wow, I didn't know that. You know, I've only been watching football for about 50 years. I'm not a coach, but I feel like, you know, you and, and you've watching for a long time. You feel like you know the game. and But, you know, we don't know <laughs> We really don't know anything right. at that level compared to what these guys are. But most of the, you know, a lot of the analysts are kind of pedestrian and they don't really break down the game. You know, that guy really, I mean, that one replay, I don't know if you remember, it was kind of in the fourth quarter and just, you know, he was saying how New England, it just looks like they know what, what's coming. They knew exactly what was coming and they flooded that zone, you know, where the receivers and there's nobody was covered and golf just didn't have, you know, they had nowhere to go, you know, and, um, you know, I thought that's that's really the mark of a good analyst. You know, he's really good. He's going to be a guy that, you know, that you're going to, you know, when he's doing a game, you're going to want to listen to him because he's doing the game. How many people are like that in in, in sports uh, or analysts? You know, we just lost one over the weekend with Johnny Miller retiring. Um, I mean, I listened, you listened to him because Johnny Miller was doing the, the telecast. You know, it just was such a unique voice. Yeah, the voice. And so candid and it's such a, it, you know, yeah, it's such a way of, uh, of of describing things and breaking down things, unlike anyone else. And I think that Romo kind of fits in this category. I mean, I think Troy Aikman does a great job. I think Collinsworth does a great job. I don't think anyone's going to be like, you know, this one, this guy. And he's just starting. He's just in his second year. And Jim Nance, him and Jim Nance have a great rapport. And you can see Nance really likes to set him up and play off of him. You know, and again, you know, that first field goal, you know, where – Nick, you know, where, where, where Nance just said, you know, that nobody had missed a field goal. And right, that, and uh, Romo and called him out. This year. <laughs> and Romo called him yeah. out for it, and then he misses it. Yeah. I mean, that's a great moment. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, that was really you good. Know, I think I just, I just think, I think the careful thing they need to do is not to, you know, not to play over, overplay his ability to forecast and predict things so much. You know, that's going to be something, because I, I kind of wonder, you know, as he gets further removed from being an active quarterback, you know, how much is he going to be able to, is it going to affect his ability to kind of break these things down? He was just playing against these teams a couple of years ago. So right. he has a knowledge of them, you know, so we'll see, you, you know, he knows, you know, Wade Phillips really well. We're having, you know, was his coach in Dallas, you know, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see. 
I want to ask you about Nance, but one more quick thing about Romo. You know, what's interesting to me, I was kind of thinking this through, is we what made Madden great was how he was able to break down the play for us on his Telestrator after the play. And it seems what's making Romo great is how he's able to break down the play for us before the snap. It's kind of an interesting contrast, you know, as we're kind of watching – because right now, you know, Madden's the gold standard. He is the greatest of all time. And as we watch yeah. uh, Romo try to approach that, I thought it's kind of been interesting to see how – and you've mentioned he does obviously do great work after the play too. But his calling card right now is kind of the opposite of what Madden's was. Any opinion on that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, – yeah, I think that he, you know, he had this knack. You know, he has this knack of kind of seeing where the offense – where the ball's going to go. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly why he didn't do it as much yesterday other than, you know, the, the, the Patriots weren't, you know, they, you know, first of all, it looked like the Rams, you know, play calling was pretty vanilla yesterday and, and the Rams are pretty much a running team and, and they, you know, without Gurley, they are kind of a different team. Um, so, um, and, uh, you know, and that he didn't really do it as much with the Patriots yesterday, but it was kind of a bland game, you know? And so maybe it didn't offer itself up, but you know, he does both. I mean, again, he breaks down the defenses, you know, he breaks down the plays before and after. And, but, you know, I think what really also stands out is his ability to explain it in the ways that everyone will understand and his enthusiasm. And, you know, this is passion. You can tell this guy, he gets so excited in there and that translates. And, you know, if we're getting, he's getting excited, we're getting excited and it's genuine. It's not manufactured. And so, I mean, it it really is, you know, when he, when they first brought him on, you know, uh, it's like CBS, what are you doing? You know, right. I remember talking to Jim Nance. He says, just trust me, this guy's going to be huge. <laughs> and after that first game, you know, I got a text from Jim. What did I tell you? Because the reviews were so great. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? I mean, this is one of the great announcing hires of all time. You just do not put a player, you know, I mean, uh, in and make him number one. The only other guy who would, they would have done that with would have been uh, Joe Namath. I mean, not, not Joe Namath, Peyton Manning. Um, I mean, even Namath was not very good as an analyst, you know. Well, ESPN Peyton tried Manning, with sure. ESPN tried and it, it, it would have been a disaster. Yeah, right. So well, they yeah. tried, okay, you know, with Witten. Right, it's been a disaster. You know, they're paying a pretty big price right yeah. now. Yeah, you know, I would give that one more year. They're going to have to figure out a way to get out of that one, you know. Um, Let me ask you, you this know, about Nick. Let me ask you this about Nance because him and Sims was a good team for a long time. And then that yeah. Ravens 49ers Super Bowl happened. And I don't know. Yeah, he wasn't. I don't know what was going on with Sims that day, but it was it was basically the death of him because he got branded on yeah. Twitter that day as a dope. You know, I don't know. And I never felt that way about yeah. him. I always thought he was really good. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I think there's a shelf life for some of these guys. Right, and he hit you know? he hit it that day. He hit the wall that day. And I think he hit it, you know, and he hit the wall. And I remember a comment in that game that he made was like, who am I to second guess? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. The, the analyst. That. Yeah, the analyst. Right. That's it, what you're supposed to do. You right. Know? You're supposed to second guess. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to you know, say, give your opinion. And he said that. He just didn't want to say anything that day. Yeah, I don't know what so happened. But, I, you know, and I think that, but, you know, it was a good run. But I think that there was, I think there was a feeling that, they, you know, that it was a tired you know, that it kind of, the self-light, if it run out, they needed to do something new, and they had a chance, 
to get this guy, although it sounded really very much like uh, they were in the market for someone even before Romo came up from listening to the teleconferences last week with uh, Sean McManus. But they had a shot at this guy, you know, Tony Romo. You know, I did something with uh, Jim, one of my NFL.com columns, talking about production meetings. And um, and uh, Jim told a story about being on the golf course a couple of years ago with Al Michaels. And he said, Michaels goes, who's the next great, who's the next current, the current ant player right now is going to be the next great analyst. And he goes, Michaels goes, I got a name in mind. And Jim goes, I've got a name in mind too. Well, what's your name? No, what's your name? So they go back and forth. Finally, Michael says, Romo, Tony Romo. And Jim goes, that's my guy. And they had both had the same guy because wow. they both knew from these, from these production meetings, how right. good he was during these production meetings and how, you know, animated and, and, and how good he was explaining. So, you know, that says something that's very telling. And, you know, he was on, it wasn't just CBS who just saw him. He was on, you know, other networks knew about him. I don't think the other networks were in a position to give him the number one slot. I don't think you were going to, I don't think Fox was going to knock out Aikman or an NBC wasn't going to knock out Collinsworth, maybe. And at the time, Gruden was still, you know, last year, Gruden was still right. with Monday Night Football. So, I think what, you know, but I think that they would have liked him, definitely put him pretty prominent. And, um, but CBS had that number one spot. So I think that was the tipping point. He's obviously the tipping point for Romo there, but I'm sure the other networks were in contact with him just because the scouting report of him was out. What I wanted to ask you about Nance was just like, how, how much do you think this pairing has kind of rejuvenated him Uh, on the football side? Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. I was, I was. He was here for the, the when they played the Jets, and I had breakfast with him. You know, he's just so excited. You can hear it in his voice. You know, and and we actually went up in the booth during the game, and um, he invited us up, and you can just kind of see, you know, the interaction. We were up there in the second quarter, and yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I think he's got, you know, Jim's my age. He's gonna be fifty nine this year, and uh, you know, and I think he's gonna. I think he's going to probably ride out his NFL career with Tony, assuming Tony, you know, stays with the network and um, doesn't get a big money offer to go somewhere else, which is possible. You know, I mean, he's going to be that kind of guy. I think he's going to be really this generation's John Madden, as far as being the it analyst for, for sports on television. I don't know who's, you know, I love Jeff Van Gundy, but it's, you know, he doesn't have that same kind of presence as a Tony Romo. I can't think of any, who else am I missing? You know, Dick Vitale's kind of at the end of his line. Uh, oh no, Romo, basketball. Romo's on a level of his own right now in terms of star power. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's like, who, yeah, who, yeah. who else? I mean, I'm trying to think of guys that, that you tune into the game, you know, to listen to, you know, who I, you know, I mean, there's this few, you know, who I, I put in that list. I put in McEnroe, John McEnroe for tennis. Cause I just think they're so unique and compelling to listen to, but there's just not that many, you know, I'm trying to think if there's even anyone for baseball right now that I, I don't really think of anyone offhand. Um, well, I think I'm Smoltz and Buck are great. I just don't know that if I need, I don't, I don't think that Smoltz is that kind yeah, of a star. Yeah, I think Smoltz is, no, Smoltz isn't that kind of a star. It's you a know, good I booth, mean, but. Yeah, it's a good booth, right. and, uh, but you know, I just think that there's you know there's guys that you really listen to, in part because they're doing you know sometimes you tune in just because they're doing the game or the tournament in the case of a tennis or a golf. Now let me ask you this: Did you read the Brian Curtis piece in Ringer about Fox stealing the NFL deal 
back in the day. Yeah, like, that was a great story. The kind of underlining thing, I think, in there, reading between the lines, at least on my end, what I was kind of getting from Brian was that, hey, look around. This could happen again, right? This, there, One of these networks could get blown up by Apple or Amazon Prime or some non-traditional yeah. media or whatever you know like this this we're headed there again potentially and the networks have to guard against that because live sports is basically keeping these networks alive in a traditional right. sense when is the next uh, the NFL a couple deal years. runs out in yeah a couple 20, years 2021 yeah so that's that. going to be coming up very soon here now and um Listen, I still think it behooves the NFL to have a Super Bowl over an over-the-air network where you're going to get 120 million viewers. Right. I mean, I don't think Apple or Google or Netflix or you know are in position to deliver that kind of an audience. Um, you know, but as of right now, but you know, who knows what it's going to be like ten years ago? You know, you just look. I just tell people. Look what it was like 2008, and look what it's like. You know, all these things didn't even exist. And Twitter was barely like a thing in 2008. No Netflix, no you know, none of this other stuff. Hulu, what was that? And you see how far, how many things have happened in 10 years. Now let's, you know, map it out to, you know, no, it's 2019. So map it out to 2029 now, and who knows what it's going to be like? You know, you're talking about different platforms, and you know, it's this thing is so fast moving. You know, I just I guarantee you it's going to be different. I just don't ex- exactly how because, you know, I couldn't have predicted the internet. I couldn't have predicted, you know, Twitter or Facebook, and I certainly couldn't have predicted Netflix. And you know, I mean, we, we, we watch stuff now. I'm watching more stuff on Netflix and Amazon than I do on. I can't even. I don't even know if I watch an NB a, a network TV show anymore beyond like sixty minutes. You know, right? And so. um and even, you know, the, the cable networks are starting to, you know, sports networks are starting, you know, they're, they're, they're having issues, you know, that, that, that they couldn't have foreseen 10 years ago, just because the whole landscape and the whole plats, all these platforms are changing and how the delivery systems are, are changing. And, uh, and you can guarantee you that in 20, 10 years, that it's just going to be, that there's going to be stuff out there that, that, that you could not forecast as being viable um, that you can, that you would think now there's no way that's going to happen the same way. in you know, 20, 2009, that you would think that Julia Roberts would be on a series on Amazon, you know, or Hulu would have a, a you know, the, the, the Emmy winning drama, you know, um, you know, I thought that was really interesting that they, just to digress for a second, that what, what's the name of that show? I can't remember uh, hand, and, you know, that that was like the second or third ad on the show yesterday, which shows you what kind of money there were, you know, in the Super Bowl yesterday the, during the game. I mean, that that was huge money that get that placement. Again, that's stuff that you never even thought about in 2009. So, yeah, I think Apple and all the we, – we're mentioning Apple or Google or YouTube. I mean, there could be something else out there. That we don't even know of and, yet. And almost, right. That we don't even know about yet. Yeah. That hasn't even created yet. Or maybe it's just, you know – it's just getting off the ground. Someone's just raising money for it. I mean, the athletic, you know, are you kidding me? Even like three years ago, it was like, it's nothing. It's not going to, you know, there's no way this can exist. And now it's like the hottest thing out there. 
it, these things are happening so fast in rapid fire time. So, you know, I think the trick is if you own a, a league, if you own a sports team, you know, and you're trying to read, you know, you're trying to, your, your contract is up. How do you position yourself? How do you do it? You know, to be able to be in a position to take care of a changing, uh, sports platform, changing sports landscape. So you're not locked into a long-term deal that, you know, all of a sudden you're outdated, you know, 10 years from now. And I mean, you think of a couple, a company like Apple, who's a trillion dollar company, right? They can be creative. They could say like, I'm just spitballing, just having a little fun here, but they could say to the NFL, look at, we'll give you four times what CBS will give you for the AFC package. And when it's our turn during the super to it's our turn in the Super Bowl rotation, we'll simulcast with ABC who doesn't get a Super Bowl. We'll get a little coin from them to offset it a bit. And in turn, you give us the streaming rights to every Super Bowl. You know, like they like they can just be like I'm just spitballing, just saying something crazy. Yeah. But those uh, are the kinds know, of things knows? that could happen, right? I mean, it's yeah, right. You know, who knows? I mean, it's just I think this is way above my. My pay grade, so to speak. Yeah, they're not going to ask us. Level. Yeah, we're just having fun. But but you know, but but someone's but someone's trying to someone's throwing out these plans, these ideas. And if you're a sports owner, I mean, what you still want to reach maximum amount of people. I mean, that's still the kind of that's still the way to go. You don't want to all of a sudden make it so that your your the Super Bowl is being seen by 20 million people who are paying a premium price, but it's 20 million people. Right, because that's the quickest way to kind of become irrelevant, you know. So you still have to put it on a platform that people, you know, that that reaches, especially for a Super Bowl, and especially for NFL games that are once a week. It's different than a baseball or basketball, where it's every day or you know every other day. This is once a week, you know. So you have to kind of factor all this in. You know, where's our popularity? Where are we going? How much? You know, is you know. Are we going to take more money but sacrifice exposure and in the end end up losing, you know, our foothold? You know, the NFL's got a pretty precarious, you know, of all the sports. I mean, name me one sport that's not going to be here in 30 years from now. What would you say? Yeah, well, it'd be, yeah it'd be football would be the first on the list. Right. Or, so bo- they're or in boxing, a, right. maybe. They're in a, yeah, what? Is it still here anyway? Right. Is it here anyway? Yeah, right. I don't yeah. even, I don't even, can't even name me three fighters. Uh, but football, you know, I mean, it's like it, we're talking about the, the most popular sport might not be around in 30 years because all I know is in my town, my kids played junior programs about eight, nine years ago. And these junior programs are now with a lot. There were a lot of kids football in the, and, and those programs, they didn't have a team this year. They didn't have enough kids signing up. And I can guarantee you that it's just a matter of time before a lot of these high schools don't have enough kids to field football teams. I kind of think and in high schools. I think high schools. I think high schools in areas where football's not. I think still in the South, and in some you know places in California, definitely in Texas, they're still. I mean, I think you're going to see most football players coming from. I suppose they come from there now, but it's going to even be, you know, Ohio. It's kind of hard seeing football disappear in Ohio, but geez, I mean, but it's not hard for me to disappear. Think that my kids' school that had what. Uh, what they have like 2,000 students in the school that they're not going to have football in a few years because they might not have enough kids to play the sport and when that starts happening then football's in real trouble I think Drew Brees and flag football are going to save football because I think what's going to happen is it's going to be it's going to be cool to play flag football till high school and that's going to save you know that's going to save 
the game because the studies seem to be that, you know, there is a level of safety if you can avoid, you know, taking those dumb hits to the high school level. And, I mean, look, I'm not Chris Nowitzki or whatever. I don't want to say something I shouldn't. I'm getting too far in the weeds here. But I just think the longer we can convince kids that it's cool to play flag football, you know, and Drew Brees is spearheading this right now down in Louisiana with his kids. You know, they're playing flag football and loving every second of it and making it cool, and it's grown. I read something like 600% in the last three years, flag football in New Orleans. Yeah. And, you know, then you, you lock those kids in. They love it, and parents feel a little bit safer when it comes to high school with the maturity of the body, and, and maybe that saves it. But I see what you're saying. Like, there's definitely – the danger's definitely there. So, Yeah, yeah. Head head injuries and, you know, are scary. I just, I just remember. I just remember. You know, we had a my kids played, and there was a kid on one of their teams who was like, you know, very athletic, not very big, but great player. But the kid would throw his body around all over the place, and this kid was limping or wobbling off the field. You know, and most you know, two or three times a game. I mean, and it was just like I don't think I let my kid do that. I mean, what kind of damage is he doing to his body? Yeah, that's scary. You know. You know, so, so anyway, well, so listen, Ed I think it's going to be interesting to see. You have been um, with us for a long time, and I appreciate the support. Uh, NFL.com, you do a, a great column there. Are you, are you putting a column up, uh, kind of recapping Super Bowl? Is that something? Yeah, no, actually, no, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, they, they do that there live, so I'm kind of a contributor. So, uh, but it's been fun. I've been writing this kind of reading related column for the last three years. So it got me, you know, right about Tony Romo and uh, different, you know, the different commentators. I, you know, I talked to Bruce Arians this year, who he wasn't very happy being an analyst until you until, know, until he wasn't, calls. right? <laughs> right. So, right. You know, so uh, but it's been fun. So you know, um, is, is it at Sherman about, Report you know, on Twitter? Pardon? Is it at, what is it at Sherman Report or is it at Ed Sherman on Twitter? No, it's at it's at NFL dot com. I haven't really done I haven't done Sherman Report now since two thousand sixteen. I kind of put that to bed for a while because I just had I was actually I just got too busy doing other things. So that's it was a good thing, but it, and it kind of ran its course a little bit. I just really didn't feel like I was able to invest the time into it. Um, so um, it's good, you know. Right now, I'm really I'm knee deep in this book, and it's going to be that way through most of the summer, and then we'll see. Maybe you know, hopefully we can. Hopefully you'll have me back on and we'll promote the book when it comes out in, in the fall. Oh, I can't wait for that for sure. Um, how do we, are you on Twitter? Can we find you there? You're on Twitter, yes, right? Yes, uh, it's at Sherman underscore report. Sherman underscore report oh. on Twitter. Yeah. And the yeah. big the Big Ten book is the next big thing. I can't wait. And maybe we'll have, yep. you, have you in between now and then to, uh, to talk about something. Something will come up, I'm sure. Okay, great. All right, thank you for this. Could have used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank our main man, Ed Sherman For being on the podcast today In a second here, we're going to take a break 
Uh, and we're going to come back and meet a guy named Bob Letterer. Bob has put a lot of work into a book called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. And it's about the Jets, Super Bowl three winners, 50 years ago this year. Uh, and it focuses on the non-Joe Namath players on that team. And he really wrote a fantastic book. Um, and I read almost all of it. I think I had about 45 pages left when I talked to Bob. And I'll finish it off here, here in a bit. Uh, but just a great guy, really nice. And I know he put a lot of his heart and soul into this book. Uh, so I'll give you guys a chance to uh, to learn about it from Adwi. Uh, did a really interesting interview, I think. And we'll get to that in a second. I want to tell you about one other thing, book club related. Uh, there's a new book called The Sopranos Sessions. And it's by the guys who wrote TV the book. I don't know if you remember that was a book club book of the year last season or probably the season before that and it's um a guy named alan seppenwall and another guy named matt zoller sites who write these books and um seppenwall is notoriously stingy with his time i mean tv critics in general i probably shouldn't even blame him To, to book a tv critic is the hardest thing to do on this podcast and i guess probably because they have to spend so much time just watching tv i guess they're brutal though brutal and we've had Seppenwall a couple times. He's been nice enough to come on. He came on to promote that book. Then he had this Breaking Bad book, and I really wanted to do something on it, and I could not find the guy. I couldn't reach him on email. I couldn't reach him on Twitter. He just would not respond to me. You know, And eventually you're like, look, I'm trying to do this guy a favor. If he's not going to respond, forget it. So when the Soprano Sessions came around, I really wanted to do something, but I didn't want to go through the hassle I went through. The last time with Seppenwall, so I was like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to buy it as a fan and read it. And I did that, and I got so pumped up about it. I'm like, well, what if I reach out to Matt, and maybe we can do something? So I reached out to Matt, and he got back to me like right away on DM and asked me to email him. So I emailed him a pitch for the book club, but I'm like, here's the easy thing. I already have the book, and I already read it, so we don't even need a book. All I need from you is 20 minutes to chat about it on the phone. And his response was, okay, I'll send this to the publisher and see what they say. And I wrote back and said, well, why? What does the publisher have to do anything? Do you want to do the interview or not? And I haven't heard back, so it's probably unlikely uh, I will hear back. But, you know, things blow my mind all the time on this show, I guess. So we'll see if we hear back. Because it would be fun to talk about that book. Look at it. I'll give him one plug for free. Uh the Soprano Sessions, it's an awesome book if you love The Sopranos. Uh, those guys are the kings. Seppenwall, TV, greatest TV writer in the world. So him and Feinberg, Daniel Feinberg, two best. Uh, I wish we could have him on more because it's fun. I love talking about TV, but these guys just no time for TV with me. Seppenwall is always on like the Joe Poznanski podcast, though, just yucking it up with those guys. But I am no Joe Poznanski, as we all know. So that's kind of where the book club stands. Let's have some fun with Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football forever. Take a break and come back with its author, Bob Letterer.
next guest is a writer and the founder of RFL Communications. He's a former resident of Flushing, New York, and he's been a Jets fan since 1963. And he has wrote the definitive book on all members of the Super Bowl three champion Jets, not named Joe Namath. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Bob Letterer. Bob, how are you doing today? Steve, I am doing fine. I understand you've got a lot worse weather than we do, but um, we survived it, and I hope you will up there in Buffalo as well. Yes, in the words of Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, whose birthday it would have been today, the ice is covering the trees. So, mm. yes, not a, Well, it can be a pretty sight, but usually not. So I was uh, – let me give the listeners a little bit of background, although I mentioned this on the book club uh, – the book, let's just get it out there right away, too, from the top, is Beyond Broadway Joe, uh, the Super Bowl team that changed football. And um, every once in a while, I will beg people to allow me to promote their books. Um, and other times, uh, I'll just ask them. And then other times, even, people will ask me. And uh, this is an instance where uh, Bob reached out and said, hey, I got this book. Would you want to? check it out and help me promote it. And I said, absolutely. And um, I know we've been talking about it in the book club the last few weeks. And uh, Bob is here to join us. And, and we're going to talk a lot about the book. But I was reading your profile and you were talking about being a lifelong fan of New York sports and you're a Rangers guy. Um, you want to talk 94 Rangers for three seconds with me just for the fun of it. Oh, you know, sure. That was that was a great year, too. I'm, I'm not old enough to remember the uh, the Stanley Cup they won back in the in the 20s or whatever in four, 1941 uh, 44 I guess it was but uh, um but no I that was um, I was in Chicago at that point and uh, yes it was a it was a great moment just watching them after all those years of frustration and they and you know like the Jets and like the Mets who I'm also fans of back in the 60s the Rangers got so close right and just they, they they couldn't overcome Bobby Orr, uh, and uh, hey, that was a big thing to overcome. But he just completely would take over a game when the Rangers really were were there and 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 ready to challenge and maybe you know win a game, win a series, uh, win the cup. And the year that the Mets won the World Series and that the Jets won the Super Bowl and the Knicks won the NBA championship, the Rangers were eliminated by the Bruins. Um, in I guess in the, it would have been the semifinals because the, uh, the expansion teams were were playing the NHL established teams at that point for the championship. Yeah, '94 is just such a fun cup. Seven games with uh, the drama of Burray and Richter on a penalty shot in the one game. There's also a game where Burray, I think it was the first game in Vancouver, Burray had scored a goal and been ejected for a high sticking penalty in the first five minutes. Um. And uh, man, just the, the the Messier guarantee in uh, in game six before game six of um, the Devil series, yeah. you know, and then he gets the hat trick, and they win game seven on the Stefan Matto goal. Yeah, and, and if you and if you were if you were in New York at the time, Howie Rose, who was the the voice of the Rangers on radio, when Stefan Matto one more scored, to climb. Uh, the game winner in overtime and in the sixth game, and he's just yelling, Mato, yeah. Mato, Mato, Mato. One more it, hill to climb, baby. One more hill to climb, he said. Um, yep. I yep. just wanted to mention that. And, you know, that year, 
that that ninety four year with the the Rangers making a run and the Knicks making a run, that's really one of the big years in the history of sports talk radio and Mike and the Mad Dog, really kind of solidifying their show, and being with what they were traveling to the games and just the way New York kind of embraced those two runs and and Mike and the Mad Dog's role in that I think is a little understated if well a you don't know anything about New York sports radio or don't really care anyway. Um, but I think just the uh, the medium in general of sports talk radio really took a boost from those two New York teams making a run. And now you're looking at Mike and the Mad Dog started in 89, so now they're in year five, so they're really established. And they get the first big spring with both teams going all the way to the fi- to game seven of the finals, both teams. So I thought that that mm-hmm. was uh, pretty cool too. Yeah, well, and, and I have to tell you that as, Someone who took speech lessons back in the 70s, um, because I had a New York accent, I probably still do, um, but someone who had an accent and was told I would never be able to work in a market like New York if I sounded like I was from New York, uh, <laughs> the Mad Dog really uh, set a new standard, I think, for you know anybody that ever wanted to be on radio all over the country. Because no longer did it really matter, except maybe on ESPN, you know, how provincial a voice, you know, that that you had. Um, And so, you know, you had a whole new era of sports announcers with very, very pronounced regional accents um, who were not only doing games, but um, but were being loved by the locals because they were a local. Well, that's a good job by you, Bobby. Good job by you. All right. <laughs> Beyond Broadway, Joe, uh, it's, I assume the book is here now because you wanted to team it up with the 50-year anniversary of them winning this, right? That's the answer to the well, why was, this yeah, book now was, question. That, that's how I timed it. I yeah. started working on it three years ago, uh, three years before 2018, um, just kind of on a whim. Uh, while I was watching Super Bowl three on the NFL Network for probably the tenth time, but I was watching it with uh, two of my boys, um, who I had talked to about the history of the game for many years, but they'd never seen it. And so we started to watch it together, and it became very obvious to me from the questions they were asking me that so many of the really talented players on the Jets um, were just not uh, memorable you know, in NFL history anymore, as good as they had been in in six, in the 60s and in the early 70s. Because the Jets, in the 1969 AFL All-Star game, which was played the week after Super Bowl three, the Jets had 11 players in Jacksonville playing in that game. And they could have had probably another five or six more playing for the AFL, AFL East. So... Um, you know, that's where my idea really came from, because I was a big fan. You know, look, everyone was a fan of Joe Namath, but I was a big fan of Jerry Philbin, who was their left defensive end and who went on to be on the all, all-time all AFL team. And my other favorite player was Emerson Boozer, who was the Jets halfback. And uh, a little, not enough, I felt, was known, uh, particularly historically, about those guys and everybody else. And so I set out to do a book about everybody else. Here's what I was thinking about the other night. I was watching the uh, the Super Bowl. I was thinking about Belichick. 
And thinking about him, you know, you think about his legacy a little bit and you think about, all right, so Super Bowl 25, he shuts down this Bills offense with his game plan on defense. One of the great offense of all time, that Bills offense. And then he beats the Rams in 2001, the, the greatest show on turf, you know, with a game plan. He's got a perfect game plan for the Rams. And I was thinking about the Jets. I knew we were going to do this. And I was thinking, I got to ask Bob. Who was the mastermind of the game plan? Because we, you know, like this isn't about Namath and the finger and the guarantee and that that gets all the headline. But when you're a 17 point underdog, you know, you pulled off you pulled off quite a plan because Vegas isn't quite it's not. I mean, the story to you isn't as simple as they were just underestimated. Right. It was. Yeah, they were the underdogs and they came up with this. Who's responsible for this and what did they do and how did they do it? Um, and we can kind of uh, go the, slowly the, the, with that the, if you want. Yeah, the, the credit, the credit, and I think just about every Jet player, you know, would tell you as they told me, you know, had to go to Weeb Eubank, the head coach, but also to the offensive uh, coordinator. His name was Cleve Rush, and the defensive coordinator, and his name was Walt Michaels. Um, I was lucky enough, uh, you know, for those of you who have not heard anything about the book. I was fortunate enough to be introduced to a guy who bought the Weeb Eubank estate. So I had access to all of Weeb's playbooks, all of his personal notes, all of his uh, dictated notes to his assistant about the players and how good they were year to year and what progress they were making. And uh, one of the things that I came across was the Jets defensive game plan. And, um, you know, one of the things that irritated me this past weekend as I was preparing to watch the Super Bowl was that CBS did a a tribute, uh, they called it, to the Super Bowl Jets team of 68. And basically it was Joe Namath, who they said, and I quote, single-handedly won Super Bowl three. <laughs> and frankly, as, as much as I love Joe, and Joe was a difference maker, there's no doubt about the fact that the Jets won because of Joe. But Joe Namath didn't play defense that day. And Joe Namath didn't carry it for 121 yards that day, as Matt Snell did. And you have to give the Jets' defensive coordinator, Walt Michaels, a ton of credit. In fact, one of the great ahas that I found out, just by looking at data, is that in the 68 regular season, the Colts, who were considered one of the greatest teams of all time and one of the greatest defenses of all time, actually gave up more total yards uh, to the opposition than the Jets did. It was close, but the Colts gave up, I think, 70 or 80 more yards for the season than the Jets did. And the AFL was known as a more high-powered, offensive-oriented league. So the Jets were, you know, year week in and week out, you know, having to play much tougher offensive teams um, than the Colts were. And so I think that's even a greater tribute. Like I, I had the last interview that Walt Michaels has done. And um, I told him that figure and he had forgotten that. And I also figured out, you know, uh, he had a system where basically the Jets wanted to hold the other team to under 17 points a game defensively because they had so much offense that they figured that would be, you know, more than enough for them to win their games. And almost to the number the defense did that that year, and that, of course, 
is if you remove the punt returns for touchdowns and the interceptions for touchdowns. Thank you, Buffalo. You intercepted the name of three times in the game up at Wall Memorial that that week uh, during the 68th season that, that were returned for touchdowns. Five five interceptions in all, three returns wow. for touchdowns. So if you if you take all those numbers out of the equation, uh, the Jets held their opposition to under 17 points a game defensively that year. Um, so Walt Michaels deserves a, cre- a lot of credit, and we've been Cleve Rush on the offensive side because if you look back at the newspaper clippings from back then, um, and I had a chance to do that even though I lived re- reading them you know, 50 years ago, everybody assumed that Joe Namath was going to throw 50 passes and go for the bomb on every third play. And he did exactly the opposite that day. They just played a ball control offense that day. Namath didn't have a touchdown pass. Uh, and, in fact, he didn't throw a pass in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and Maynard didn't and have a catch either, right? And, yeah, May- Maynard was basically, he was injured. And the Jets weren't sure how badly, and the Colts had even less understood what his situation was. But the Colts had not been beaten deep by any wide receiver, and that included, you know, Bob Hayes, the world's fastest human of the Cowboys that year, and a number of others. And nobody had gotten behind their zone defense. And Maynard did it the first time he ran deep against them in the first quarter. And from then on, the Colts double-teamed him everywhere he went because they, they knew if, if he got behind him again, it was going to be six. And he actually did beat them twice in that game. And the second one, the first time he was overthrown just by a hair. And the second time he caught the ball in the end zone, but he had a foot out of over the end line. So it didn't count. Well, because there's that kind of famous story from the uh... – AFL championship game where he's telling Joe Namath the whole day, right? That he, he's got a bomb if he needs it. He's got a bomb if he needs it. He's got yep. a step. And then they finally go to him at the end. And sure enough, he's got a step and he, he gets a big plate, which I thought was a really well, interesting. Well, not only that, but he, not only that, but he didn't just, he didn't just catch the ball, but the ball was supposed to come over his left shoulder as he was running down the right sideline. And there was so much wind that day at Shea. But the ball, uh, which was about 75 yards in the air, because Namath was throwing from the left hash mark uh, and throwing the ball to the right sideline down the field. The ball was supposed to be over uh, over Maynard's left shoulder. The wind blew it over his right shoulder, and he made the catch a couple of steps inside, you know, the field of play, and immediately got knocked out of bounds. And he he called it the greatest catch he ever made. Yeah, it's a sweet, it's a sweet play and a great story behind it. Kind of just begging for it all day, you know, like, hey, I got this guy, I got to step here, I got it. Trust me, I got it. And then they finally dial him up, and sure enough, he's got it. Yeah, let, yeah. Let yeah. me, let me well, ask. That's why, he's a, that's why he's a, that's why he's a Hall of Famer, Steve. Right, <laughs> that'll do it. Let me ask you this: what, what was the percentage of? Oh, I want to talk to this guy, and oh, man, he's dead. <laughs> like we just, we just talked to Jane Levy about her wonderful uh, Babe Ruth book. And, you know, she expressed how different it was from even her mantle book in terms of access with people who have passed away. Um, still got to be a lot of members of this team alive, though, right? I mean, you get, for the most part, pretty there successful. Were, yeah, there were, there, were, there were about 39 um, still alive when I started. Um, oh, that's less that than would have been in 2015. Um, I talked to 36 of them. I didn't talk to Joe Namath, or I should say Joe Namath wouldn't talk to me. Uh, I didn't talk to Randy Beverly, who was one of the stars of the Super Bowl game. We never could quite figure out 
what his issue was, but um, I kept getting him on the phone and he kept um, saying he didn't want to talk about anything. And the third player was a guy named Lee White, um, who even some of the players on the team said they didn't even remember. And that's because even though he was their first-round draft pick in 1968, he was a fullback, he got hurt in the first quarter of the first game of the 68 season, and basically he went home for the rest of the year. So he wasn't even around, you know, Mm. for the festivities. And in fact, I found in Weeb's memorabilia a telegram from Lee White to Weeb Eubank congratulating him on winning the American Football League Championship. So those three guys, um, I didn't get to speak to, but there were 35 players who did talk to me and Walt Michaels, um, who did talk to me. Buddy Ryan was still around, but Buddy Ryan was in a very bad way and he was on his last leg. So we didn't get to speak to him. Uh, and so I spoke to, you know, I spoke to Rex Ryan, uh, and, uh, he gave me a little bit about, you know, his dad's days in, in New York. Um, but they were as a group, um, a very, very, um, you know, wonderful group of guys, very thoughtful, uh, a lot of memories. And uh, for some of them, it was a, um, a much overdue um, situation for them to be asked about what happened in 1968 because uh, Namath doesn't hog the attention, but Namath gets all the attention. And so nobody had ever really attempted to talk to everybody else. And I... I venture to say the book has a number of great stories that, you know, people who read the book, um, I know do enjoy because I've seen all kinds of reviews from all kinds of just everyday fans, um, who tell us how much they've enjoyed it. And the players were all too willing to spend whatever time, um, I will, I need it in order to get their story and to find out quite interestingly what they thought about the guys, you know, playing next to them on the line or in the backfield or, or whatever, or, or guys they played against. And I was even able to talk to a number of AFL All-Stars. I talked to uh, both of the Buffalo Bills cornerbacks, Booker Edgerson and, and Butch Bird. Um, they were both AFL All-Stars. And I talked to them about the Jets, you know, wide receivers, uh, George Sauer Jr. And, and Don Maynard. And they, they were very giving of their time and, and telling me some interesting stuff about playing against them. Um, so it, it was really it was a labor of love, Steve. It always fascinates me to see how people set things up. And one thing's really cool about the book, and again, it's called Beyond Broadway Joe, uh, the Super Bowl, that team that changed football forever by Bob Letterer. And the way Bob does it is the chapters are kind of position groups. And like So like I just have it open to Chapter 11 randomly right now. That's the running backs. And then it's got the list of the running backs and who their their jersey numbers are. And then you kind of go back by back and each guy kind of gets their chance to have their story told. Why- yeah, can, I, can I tell you, can I tell you what my, can I tell you what my, my thinking about it was? Yeah. I think it's, it'll find it interesting. Namath was obviously such a key part of the team. He was the most important figure on the team. Yeah. Nobody can, can doubt that. And that's probably why he's gotten so much attention for so many years. But I treated Joe as kind of the spokes um, on a vehicle. And and I have a very long chapter about Namath. In fact, it's the second longest chapter in the book. But it concludes with the thought that if he didn't have a great offensive line, if he didn't have really good running backs and terrific wide receivers and the number one defense that year in the American Football League, 
you know, all of his talent wouldn't have gotten them as far as they ended up going. And so it was really his supporting cast, their guile and their talent and their dedication um, that, that really helped them lift Joe up so he could fulfill his Super Bowl guarantee. Yeah, well, I thought it was really cool how there's like the book is basically three parts. So like part one, there's five different chapters. That, you know, he goes through the guarantee, through the game. Then part two, the bulk of the book is the profiles of the players. And then part three is how the game changed everything. Uh, so I think it's set up really, really cool. We always find stuff like that interesting. We talked about the Jets and their cooperation. What about the Colts? Were Colts interested in talking to you about this? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I spoke to about a half a dozen of the Colts. Um, and the ones I spoke to, they were very nice. Um, they gave me the time that, you know, that I needed. Uh, what I found um, is that they, they basically each admitted to me how overconfident they were going into Super Bowl three. They didn't see anything in the film of the Jets that worried them in the least. Um, and, and they played accordingly. And in fact, there are quotes from some of their best players and from coach Don Shula after the game about how concerned they were that the Colts were taking the Jets so lightly because the Jets were, you know, a good professional football team. And, uh, as Shula told Kurt Gowdy, who was the play-by-play announcer for NBC uh, for Super Bowl three, you know, you get on the field and professional players on either side, you know, can can win a game. It doesn't matter who's the better team on paper. Um, and so I have no doubt that the Colts were, were very much uh, overconfident. But I think that Namath psyched them out as well with his guarantee. Because my, my impression, and I don't have anything to back it up except my own gut instinct from talking to the players, is that... Uh, uh, the Colts got thrown out of their real game by Namath's popping off the way he did. It it did become a matter of, you know, beating the guy on the Jets opposite you. It became a matter, particularly for the defense, of I'm going to get in there and I'm going to shut that young guy up. You know, I'm going to put him on his backside. And when they weren't able to do it early, uh, the, the Jet players told me the frustration uh, coming from the Colts was, was palpable. And it just got more and more as the game went on. And, you know, things happen in football. You have bad luck, and the, the Jets intercepted four passes and recovered a fumble. Um, and I, I've talked to a lot of Colts fans who told me how lucky the Jets were that day. But, you know, you got to take advantage of those situations as well. And the Jets did take advantage of those turnovers and turn them into points. Uh, I believe all but one uh, of the turnovers um, fail to, to generate points for the Jets. Sportscaster here with Bob Lederer. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Bob F L E D E R E R. You can uh, find out more information about the book. We're talking about beyond Broadway, Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. Uh, let's real quick. I want to move on to um, in a second. I want to talk about the game changing football, but real quick before we go buy it too quickly, there's a lot of great stories in the book. Who's who's a player that just as a character you just kind of really warmed up to? Just someone who you feel like, you know, this guy, he's fun or he's 
interesting or what a story. I'm glad I really I'm really glad I got to tell that one because it might not have got out there otherwise. And that, that one's worthwhile. Well, and I, I take, take a step further than that. There are guys on the team, a handful of them, who I feel very close to, and I've become, you know, friends if there is such a thing. Uh, Pete Lamond's their tight end, who is still alive and lives in Houston. He and I talk all the time. and uh, Very funny guy, very quick-witted, tremendous sense of humor. And my running joke with him is that I'll call him up and say, hey, is the greatest tight end in Jets history around? And Pete doesn't doesn't hesitate and says, "Hold on, let me see if he's here." <laughs> uh, he he just he's just a great character, and he's confided in me a lot of stuff. Not of all, not every part of it went into the book. So he was quite a character, and he and I talk on a regular basis. Larry Grantham, who was the Jets' right side or or weak side linebacker, uh, died uh, in 2017, and before he died. We used to talk just about every week, and he taught me a tremendous amount about professional defenses and and why things go wrong on the field, and why guys who have great talent, you know, just don't just don't play up to their ability, um, and things like that. So he became, you know, somebody I became very very uh, close to, and I was you know quite upset when he died. Bill Baird. Uh, probably nobody in your audience has ever heard of him unless they were alive in the 60s. He was the Jets' free safety. And he wasn't a star. He never made the all-star team. And he was small for his for his position. And he was um, light for his position. But, boy, he was smart. And um, I learned a great deal from talking to Grantham at the Bill Baird about how important it is to be intelligent and to study film like there's no tomorrow and to be prepared basically for what the people opposite you are going to do, you know, on any given Sunday. And that makes all the difference in the world. In fact, that was one of the things that separated the jets from a talent standpoint from all the other teams in the league, because we view bank as the general manager and the coach put an emphasis of course on the physical side of the game, but he put a tremendous emphasis on, the intelligence side of the game. And when the Jet coaches would go out and look at college players, they always asked the coach, who's, who's your smartest and best player? Not, not who's your best player. Because they, they had some schemes and such, which for those days were somewhat intricate. Um, today they would be very, very vanilla. Um, but they were able to fool teams uh, with things that they would do that nobody else in the league was, was capable of doing. So those are some of the guys that uh, that I and I still have very strong feelings for. And I have to tell you, I went to the 50th anniversary of Jets reunion last October in New Jersey, and I met most of the guys for the first time. Bob, I got to ask you this too, because beyond Broadway Joe, right? He doesn't just suck up all the headlines on the field. He was good at sucking up all the headlines off the field. Is there another Jet or is there another story about these guys, quote-unquote, on Broadway, the Playboy section, the fun stuff. Is there another thing you uncovered? Uh, is there someone you said, man, that guy's lucky Joe Namath was on this team, or he would be infamous for his <laughs> for his nightlife in New York, or anything like that that you discovered while uh, 
while digging up for this book. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Steve, that I did, I did ask questions to that effect of a number of the guys. Lots of pleading the fifth, um, I bet. And and no, 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 they did not plead the fifth. Um, you know, these were these were football players and a, and a lot of good-looking guys in New York City. Um, with obviously a lot of groupies. I mean, one of the things that Namath did contribute to football was he's the first player that actually attracted women to come to the games and to watch the games because of his, you know, charisma and magnetism. So just to give you an example, uh, Namath had a Saturday night ritual before game of uh, taking a blonde to bed and having two Johnny Walker reds. And Pete Lamons, <laughs> Pete Lamons told me Joe wasn't the only guy who was getting action the night before. And I said, anybody we can mention? And he just laughed and he said, sure, you can mention me. That's fine. And there were other guys, you know, hey, you know, it's like today. They're, they're athletes. They're in demand. Uh, they're, you know, they're, I mean, Curly Johnson was their punter. And probably not too many people in your audience know who he was. But he was not only a terrific punter in the AFL for 10 years, but Curly was also the team prankster and the guy that made sure that the the team didn't take things too seriously and that they didn't get too high or too low. And um, I was told by a number of the players that they would sneak out after bed check when they were on the road and three or four of them would, you know, would kind of hit the town, not, not New York, but wherever they were playing. And Curly Johnson had kind of a foul mouth, but Curly Johnson had this Southern twang, this Texas twang that just uh, fascinated women. And Lamons told me that Curly would say things to groups of women they would pass, you know, in a hotel. If anybody else on the team had said it, they would have had their face slapped. But the women would listen to Curly, and they would just laugh their heads off. Wow, I love it. I got to tell my wife. My wife's always. I got to tell her. So you know, I got to. You always want me to take this podcast to the next level. Before my next big interviews, I need a blonde, and I need a couple. I need a couple cocktails before bed. At honey, that's what the Jets <laughs> did, and it, it worked. Let me. I, I'll get Bob on is the your phone. Wife, is your, Bob, Bob will tell you. Steve is your wife. Is, but no, Steve is your wife blonde? No, brown, brown hair. So. <laughs> she can't, honey. If you were blonde, I mean, I would, I would settle for you. But let me get Bob on the phone, Tammy. Let me get Bob on the phone. I'll tell you. Um, you got to get this book. Have you? Have you? You haven't gotten with Mike, Mike or the Mad Dog, right? Because they would love this book, and they would kill. I always say that nobody does author interviews better than Mike and the Mad Dog do them, and they we, they would love this book. We got to find a way to get you in front of those two guys. Well, I'd I'd, lo- I'd love to. I've tried to get on uh, Francesca's show. He would love this book, uh, and you know, um, oh, I, well, I would think so. I've I've sent him a copy, and and I and you know, Matt Dog doesn't really do too many football interviews, but I've also tried, to, you know, to talk to uh, uh, what's his name on on ESPN, uh, Mike Greenberg, who's a oh yeah, he's a big Jack guy, right? Jets fan, and I, I've actually sent him some insulting tweets and such to try to goad him into at least talking to me. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 I think this is a great book. Uh, of course I would anyway, but it's a great book for uh, anybody out there that is old enough to remember the Jets and for people who are interested in the history of the National Football League, because 
this game really did change everything about football and actually establish the things that we take for granted today, like the American Football Conference, which would not have come to pass if the Jets had not won. Um, There was a uh, very interesting uh, couple of ceremonies right there in Buffalo, strangely enough, the next season after the Jets won the Super Bowl. And it was uh, the one and only time probably where the opposing team's fans um, gave a big hip-hip hooray and cheer for, you know, the visiting team. When the Jets arrived in Buffalo before their first game in 1969, and that was O.J. Simpson's debut, the Buffalo Bills cheerleaders greeted them at the airport. And the next day, before the game started, the Buffalo Bills cheerleaders took out a big banner that said, Welcome Champions. And the Jets, you know, ran through, you know, the Bills cheerleaders onto the field. So uh, the game has such importance to, to other teams in the American Football League after Green Bay had just manhandled Kansas City in Super Bowl One and Oakland in Super Bowl Two, And suddenly... The Jets had given the American Football League respectability and credibility, and you do and uh, that meant meant everything. You doing you doing my job for me there, Bob. I wanted to transition into kind of what it was that this game changed the most, and is it just the idea of the the AFL having credibility in that game? Is that the big thing that no longer could the NFL team just assume that their championship game was the championship game and what met them later at the Super Bowl was a formality. Was that really the big thing? You know, strangely, strangely, strangely enough, I don't think uh, that was big, but I don't think that was the biggest thing that happened. Okay. Good. Because uh, most, most, most NFL people thought that the game was a fluke. Um, they, they thought if the Jets played uh, the Colts a hundred times, that Baltimore would win 99 of them. In fact, yesterday, yesterday I read for the very first time, that Lombardi, after watching the game, um, who had said before the game that Namath was the kind of guy that could really do damage if you didn't take care of things, and the Colts didn't take care of business that day. But even Lombardi, after the game, apparently told some people that if they played the Colts again, that the Jets wouldn't win You know, out of the next hundred times. So um, there was a complete disbelief in NFL circles. Uh, it went all the way down to the media. There was a writer in New York named Bill Wallace, who was basically the NFL writer for the New York Times. And he wrote three days after the Super Bowl game that the Jets, if you took Namath off the team, the Jets were no better than the Denver Broncos, who had won three games that year. And he said it just shows you how much, you know, how much a mediocre team can do when they get lucky. Um, so, I mean, that was just another example. But but let's get to the AFC for a second, because if yeah. the Jets have lost, um, Pete Rosell, the NFL commissioner, already had some plans on the drawing board that would have done away with the American Football League structure. In other words, the Jets would have been moved into the Giants division in the NFL. Buffalo would have gone into the Detroit Lions division. Uh, the Oakland Raiders would have gone into the San Francisco 49ers you know, grouping, and the Houston Oilers would have gone into where the Dallas Cowboys were. And there wouldn't have been, you know, a separate conference or, or a separate league. But because the Jets won, the Jet, the owners of the AFL team said, you know what, we want to maintain our 10-team structure. And they were so insistent on it 
that the NFL gave in, and it forced the three NFL teams to have to move from the established NFL to play in the, you know, the new American Football Conference. And so that's why we have an AFC these days with the Baltimore Colts in it and with the Cleveland Browns in it and with the Pittsburgh Steelers. All three of those teams got paid $3 million each to make the transition and shift into the AFC. Wow, so it really changed the structure of football forever because of the way this game ended like that. And 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 and, and to where and to where we are today. And I talked to young fans and I said, "Do you have any idea how the AFC came about?" And they don't. And that's why I say this book is important for historians. I, I think the book is also important because you could literally write a book like this about every Super Bowl team. There are always unsung heroes. There are always guys. You know, I mean, just take the Patriots. I mean, Brady gets all the headlines, and, and he certainly deserves it. And he's got a really nice supporting cast. But, you know, I don't think the average football fan knows a darn thing about 18 or 19 of the starters of the New England Patriots. Um, so you could write a really interesting book each year because they keep having tremendous churn on their roster about who these other guys are and what they're contributing and, and what their skill set is and why Belichick is able to use them so effectively. And that's really what I did with this book. With the Jets, in those days, there was much less turnover. And it was important to build your team piece by piece, preferably through the draft, um, and to get these guys to learn to play with each other and have the experience of playing with each other. Because that experience of knowing what the guy to your left or the guy to your right or the guy playing behind you let's say you're a defensive lineman, I'm talking about linebackers or safeties, that everybody knows what everybody else is going to do on every single play. And imagine that, knowing and feeling confident, you know, that, that the guys around you are going to do what they're supposed to do. And if you know they can't, you, you perceive those weaknesses and you can make your own adjustment to try to help them out. The book is called Beyond Broadway, Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football forever by our guest Bob Letterer. You can find Bob on Twitter. He is at Bob F-L-E-D-E-R-E-R. And for more information, you can even go to the website beyondbroadwayjoe.com. Uh, the book is, of course, available on Amazon, places like that where you buy books. I even uh, was at a Barnes & Noble and moved it to the front for you, Bob. It's a little tradition I have. Put it in front of the Michelle Obama biography, you know, right in the front there. <laughs> and <laughs> you know what? I did something. I did something like that myself a couple of weeks ago in New York, and then I walked down the street while I was in Manhattan, and I talked a Jet fan on the street into going in and buying the book. Yeah. So I, I, I thank you for that. You're, uh, you know, the checks in the mail, Steve. It's an old Jeff Perlman trick that he taught me. So uh, I always try to do that for my, for my whatever I'm reading at the time, if I think of it. Um, and, and, and it's a, and it's a, it's a good look. It's a good looking cover. It does get you, get, it gets your attention. Is there anything else you want to plug? Anything else you want to mention before I let you go, Bob? Wow. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for the time you've given me. Today. Oh, it's fun. I, thank I you. really appreciate it's, you know, uh, it's like I said, the book's a labor of love. Um, it's, it's certainly for any, even a Buffalo Bills fan, if you go far enough back. But, you know, it, it's, it's history. Uh, and it's history of the AFL and 
because you live in a city that was one of the American Football League standard teams. Um, I think it's got a lot of resonance with people, you know, in the area. Uh, I still talk to people from various AFL cities who who tell me that even if they're young, that they know a little bit about the history of of how their team got started uh, and what it was like for them in the beginning. And oh, there's one other thing that happened as a result. Yes. Of 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 that game. Uh, because I mentioned before they were going to move teams, AFL teams, into the NFL structure. One of the things that was in consideration, and this is according to a couple of the Jets veteran players, there was a thought by the NFL they were not going to accept all the AFL teams into the league because if the if the Jets got, got uh, smashed the way Oakland and Kansas City did, the, the NFL's attitude was, well, this is such a weak league, these are such weak teams, it's going to take them a long time to get their act together and to become really good teams. And so they were looking at the possibility of not taking in, and I'll be real specific, uh, the Boston Patriots, because they were the real weakling among the franchises Those in those days. They not only were terrible on the field, they didn't really have a home field. Um, and in the in the Boston and New England area, the New York football giants were more, more popular than the Boston Patriots were. So imagine... Uh, how history would have changed if there were no Boston Patriots and New England Patriots for Tom Brady to go play for. See, Bob, you were doing so good. Now you got everyone pissed off at the Jets again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've, su- I've suffered for 50 years, but you know what? As I say in the book, at least I've seen the Jets win at the Super Bowl. And so if I never see it again, I'll still sm- uh, die with a smile on my face because I will have said, you've seen it. Well, you got to be pumped about Sammy Darnold, right? He looks like he had some promise. Yeah, I think Darnold, I, I like him. And in fact, one of the things that is um, special about him is that if you go back to the, to the start of the Jets franchise in 1963, up to the point where Darnold got drafted, um, it had been 50-something years since the Jets had actually drafted the number one rated a quarterback prospect out of college football. Uh, now, obviously, they had other quarterbacks that they've signed and and who have been pretty good players and they've drafted, but they never had access to the number one guy until Darnold. And so you go from Namath to Darnold, and I think Darnold's a keeper, and it's going to be a matter of what kind of supporting cast they can put in there, you know, around him. But yeah, he's. He's something special, and I think uh, you know your quarterback in Buffalo is as well. And obviously, Baker Mayfield is making a big name for himself. Well, listen, Bob, I appreciate all the time. Best of luck with the book. I will be uh, out there still promoting it the next couple of weeks, and um, uh, enjoy the ride. And, and let's let's talk again soon. Let's do let's do this again sometime. Thank you. I, I'd I'd love to do it. And do me a favor if you see Joe, no name a life for me. <laughs> Sounds good, Bob. Thank you. God, I stink. I am the worst podcaster in America tonight. 
you think what you hear what you're hearing is bad man i'm a disaster anyway thank you for listening to this so-called podcast the sportscaster season nine episode four i want to thank bob letterer and of course ed sherman for being on the podcast today don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our soundcloud page soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters you can also find me on twitter at sports underscore casters and you can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com want to give a shout out to my podcast partner and friend peter winson uh his podcast greetings from allentown is into the 100s now i think they're around 103 it's the greatest individual wrestling podcast in the world you can find it at gf allentown pod on twitter be a great place uh, to find information about the great greetings from allentown we were supposed to do a adams division podcast on royal rumble but i don't know if that is off for postponing that or what's going on i have to touch base with peter i'm available i know he's been busy kind of going back and forth to long island it's kind of put his time on a limit uh, so we'll have to see what goes on there. But check out Greetings from Allentown. And also check out the Place to Be Nation podcast. Uh, I'm going to be on that for the first time, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, not this week, but next week. I'll tell you more about it as it gets closer. Uh, but place to be nation.com for more information on that. Also, I want to give some uh, plugs here to the Western New York School of Hockey Ice Development Camp. Uh, the Spring Development Camp begins April 16th at the Northtown Center. Uh, check WNSOH.com or call Eric Hawk at 716-903-2658 for more info. Uh, really a great hockey school. Uh, the camps and clinics are run by today's generation of players that are in, grinding their way through the amateur scene, amateur scene determined to make it in the big leagues. Uh, our coaches are playing today's game, living today's game day in and day out. So really you're getting like top. And listen, I've known Eric for a long time. He doesn't do anything half-ass. His coaches are the best. His ice time is the best. The locker rooms are the best. He takes care of you. Uh, and if you're looking for a spring camp that's right around the corner, they begin on the 16th of April. Again, WNYSOH.com or call Eric directly. Now, I screwed this up last week, and I'm really sorry to Eric about that. Uh, the Western New York Roar Hockey League's start again and summer is right around the corner i said last week that summer registration begins april 26th that was a lie summer registration is open now league play begins april 26th Uh, so please visit wnyrh.com for more info i've played in the leagues for years they are the best roller hockey leagues in buffalo eric and jason do a great job and if i wasn't such a fucking mush mouth tonight i would talk about it longer but i gotta get out i just gotta eject because i'm the worst the worst the worst the worst um i was thinking about doing one last thing on taking paula to her first ever sabers game but maybe i should do one last thing on being the worst fucking podcaster in the world stick to the plan steve stick to the plan so i took my daughter paula to her first hockey game today her first nhl hockey game today uh, she had been to a Rochester Americans game to see my friend Kenny Agostino play, and she really enjoyed the experience there. So my friend Justin has tickets, and we knew they had two day games this weekend. So I reached out to him like a month ago and said, hey, do you have the tickets left to either of those day games? It would be a great time to take Paula. And he had today's game, so Tammy and I took her, 
and my brother Greg and my mom met us for lunch. We went to this place called Milton's, which is a great place for lunch in Chicawaga. If you're ever there, go Milton's. Great place for a pita. Greek little, little Greek joint. And then my brother Greg and his wife and my nephew met us down at the game. And um, we hung out and talked and just like from the second she woke, she woke up at 730 today, ready to go for the three o'clock game. I mean, she was wound and fired up. She's a hockey girl. She has been watching hockey videos since she was weeks old. I would lay her, Tammy would bring her to my arms and I would hold her and I'd we just I didn't know what to what to do with her, so we'd just watch I'd be like, This is your Uncle Anthony, I'd just show her videos and she loved it and she started skating last year when she was one and a half and she takes hockey once a week. Well we call it hockey, but it's really skating and she's learning from the ground up how to skate skate great. Shout out to Jessica Roswell and the great work they do. But Paula just loves the rink, loves the game, you know, already. It's nothing worth forcing her to do. She's she's two and a half and she's already done swimming ice skating, dancing, soccer, music class, gymnastics. We'll sign her up for anything. And she can do whatever she likes, but she's really taken to hockey. And I was thinking today about the first time I went to a game with my dad. And I can remember it clearly. It was against the Montreal Canadiens, and we won in overtime. I don't remember if it was 4-3 or 3-2, but something like that. And I just remember my dad was living with my grandma at the time. And I remember us, for whatever reason, being so excited to get back to my grandma's house to have a snack because this is, you know, the early 80s, and my grandma had this little TV on top of her fridge. And when you were in there, like late at night or whenever, you could turn that little TV on and it would get like 2, 4, and 7. So we were excited to watch the news, my dad and I, uh, to see the highlights from the game because we wanted to see the overtime goal again. And I just remember what a thrill it was being there with him. And uh, how much that meant to me. And she's a little young probably to have as clear of a memory of, of today as I was that day. I was a little older than she was. I think I was like three and a half or four. She's only two and a half. You know, so t- to some degree today was just as much for Tammy and I as it was for her. But man, it was so fun just to, to be in the arena. She did get a little scared when Eichel scored at first. I tried to prepare her for the horn. We were telling her it was a loud horn. When they score, but I don't think she was prepared for it to be quite that loud and as long because they really they laid into it. But it just shook her for a second, and then she was she was back, and I mean she stayed the whole time until we said, "All right, we got to go with five minutes left in the game because you know you just want to get her be able to get her out of the the arena, especially with the escalators and stuff, you know." So we left with five minutes left, but she would have stayed triple overtime I feel like I mean she was dialed in and uh, she had so much fun that the Sabres really did a good job they have this area where you can kind of like dress up and and like you put a helmet and stick you can grab a stick and put gloves on and they make like a hockey card and they print some out for you and they email it to you it's just really cool she got her first hockey card and she took a picture with Sabres to Sabretooth and with my mom and I mean she really had a great day and you know, it's just great to be able to, to have these experiences with her. You know, as a dad, I guess this is kind of what it's all about. You know, when you're changing a dirty diaper or, I don't know, doing something that's just not as cool. You're like, wow, but I get to take her to her first hockey game. And 
take her in the pool at her first swimming class and to try to ice skate and you know all those other things you get to do as a parent so I guess there is a balance like I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about how you know the second you have a kid you sign up to just be petrified for the rest of your life you know you're forever going to just worry about all the things that can go wrong because there's so many things that can go wrong and it's like well, why do we do this and it's because of days like today because you get to see the joy in their faces when they're at their first hockey game and they see their first Sabres goal their whole entire life in person so thanks for listening sorry I suck so bad be better next week Face the path of